hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined for now by Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore, but later on we're very lucky to be joined by Katrina Law and Martin Cloak from the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust to talk about some of the huge issues facing the club at the moment. Because even with no football going on, it's been quite an eventful week for the club, hasn't it, Charlie? Yeah, I keep having people... I'm sure you get this as well, saying to you like, oh, there's no football on. You must be really quiet at the moment. But um, it really hasn't felt like that uh, covering Tottenham. Um, yeah, last week was pretty crazy. I mean, we talked about um, the Harry Kane interview, uh, which was just over a week ago. And then, yeah, there was uh, Spurs' financial results coming out uh, more or less simultaneously with um, Daniel Levy announcing that non-playing staff were having their wages reduced. Um, so, yeah, that was all. that was all pretty manic. And then there's been... Uh, a few days of fallout ever since, really. So we'll get into the furloughing issue later with Martin Katrina, because it's obviously a huge, huge story with implications far beyond Tottenham. But let's just go in order. Let's start with the financial results. It seems to me, Charlie, like it shows Spurs are the most profitable club in the country. Yeah, they are. I mean, their pre-tax profits are extraordinarily high. Um, that you know, that th- th- This was the thing. I mean, th- the fact that it came out... Um, at the same time, I think just made uh, it almost exacerbated some of the frustrations people had about the furloughing and the wage reductions because they their finances are in rude health. They've made more a bigger uh, pre-tax profit than any other Premier League club by some way. Um, you know their wages are way way lower than most of than all of their rivals. You know, especially you know a club like United way down their wage to turnover ratio of 39 percent is the best in the division by a distance obviously they've got the new stadium um so the financial picture obviously this only goes up till uh, the end of june last year so it doesn't take in any of the recent uh coronavirus induced issues that there are it also doesn't take into account the pretty costly sacking of pochettino and his staff but nonetheless it it, it is as of the end of June last year, a very um, encouraging picture financially for Tottenham. James, does this just show just how good Daniel Levy is at running a profitable football club? Uh, at running a profitable football club, yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's the thing that anyone would have questioned, what, what Daniel Levy has done for the club um, in terms of the financial side of things or in terms of the, the brand um, has been huge. You, you know, you only have to look back to, to when he first arrived at the club 20 years ago to see... The, di- the difference in stature of the club, not just in terms of the, the size of the stadium, the number of people they're getting in there every week, but also in terms of the fact that Spurs have been competing in the Champions League every season for the last four or five years, which is something that would have been completely unimaginable back then. I think that sometimes has slightly been at odds with with progress on the pitch, but uh, you know, if, if you're going to look after one thing or the other and hope that uh, and hope that the other can kind of follow suit, then it is going to be to kind of put the financial stuff first and then hope you're in a position to invest further down the line. Yeah, I think it's worth... I mean, look, we will get onto the furlough stuff later on, but taking this in isolation, I kind of feel like there hasn't really been enough attention on this as a story in itself. I mean, we've done a really good story on this on The Athletic, which Matt and Charlie did, but these numbers are incredible. Like, Spurs are not only, based on these numbers, I think the best-run club financially in the Premier League, if you look at... How if you look at their pre-tax profit of £87 million, like Charlie said, their weighted turnover ratio being as low as 39%, which is completely at odds with how most Premier League clubs are run. And if you put that into the context of the achievements of the team on the pitch in the last two years, like people, you know, obviously Spurs haven't won a trophy. 
They came, they've come close to the Premier League and the Champions League. But nevertheless, they have still consistently been in the Champions League while having a wage bill that, frankly, is closer to Everton's than to the other, like, big teams in the Premier League. And they've done all, like, they, they are overachieving and making money at the same time. Charlie, do you think this was just down to the Pochettino effect? Like, do you, do you think it's sustainable to have, to make this much money and be successful on the pitch at the same time? Yeah, it is a really hard one. I think the piece goes into quite a lot of detail about the numbers. And it is it is actually a pretty extraordinary success story when you look at, as you say, making this sort of money at the same time as you've built a new stadium and you've got Champions League final that season. I mean, that is kind of crazy. But yeah, that is the big question. How much is that just, I say just, but getting, getting a managerial po- appointment absolutely bang on um, as they've done? Because I think, you know, you... Um, we hear a lot about the small things that clubs do and getting things right with recruitment and all of these things are massively important. But if you can get that managerial appointment bang on as they've done, as Liverpool have done, that is just such a big part of it. And I guess the next few years in a way will show how much it was this kind of perfect chemistry that Pochettino had with the club for a certain period and how much it was about the systems that were put in place because in theory that's what you know that's how you want to run a club that the systems are good you've got a you've got good recruitment all of those sort of things which means you can chop and change managers and it shouldn't uh, alter the results too much but we'll see we we just don't know yet because we're so early on in Jose Mourinho's reign obviously the club have spent more than 1 billion pounds building that fantastic new stadium but that uh, the accounts show that they're not like the debt for the cost of that stadium isn't especially like troublesome or problematic for the club in the immediate term because they refinanced I think over six hundred million pounds of it with long term securities through Bank of America late last year, which means that they are not you know saddled with an immediate need to pay back that debt. So the club's you know the club is in a strong long term position financially. And Charlie, it's now just over a year since that stadium opened. The anniversary was on Friday. Um, and you wrote a piece looking at all the different aspects from how Spurs have handled the move and what people make of the move. What what most stood out to you in doing that piece? I think, well, I was surprised by, and maybe this shows, um, you know, the kind of different perspective you have as a reporter um, compared to someone who sits in the stands each week. But, you know, my impression of the stadium is that it's amazing. The facilities are so great. Um, it's glistening to me it just feels like the best stadium in the country possibly in Europe by certainly in the country by a distance you know it just feels uh, so vibrant um, and fresh but I think it, it, so to me I was surprised talking to fans it's quite a divisive picture some have been really disappointed with issues over atmosphere um, you know they feel that the south stand which was held up as being this you know kind of answer to uh, the bundesliga style uh, stands and it was designed with that in mind but i think you know they feel that it hasn't necessarily got all of the most hardcore fans you know it's got some fans who as is their right don't necessarily want to be stood up and singing all game and that creates a bit of a problem um some said there were problems with the ticket exchange system which is a really good system in theory whereby you know you can if, if you can't go to a match you can put it up and someone who's a member uh, can go in your place but a lot of fans do that very regularly which means you don't really have the same people sitting around you and you can lose a bit of momentum that way uh, and it's just not quite the same community feel um but then there are lots of positives and i think 
you know, one of the salient points that came through from talking to fans was that if and when results pick up, uh, that will make a huge difference. Uh, and also talking to uh, the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, who we'll speak to later, and also to James, I think it is possible to have a kind of misty-eyed nostalgia for White Hart Lane and think that every game was rocking, which just wasn't really the case. Um, and so as and when results pick up, I think you will see a change in the atmosphere. Um, and then just talking to local businesses as well, it's interesting because obviously, you know, the new stadium is is really good for businesses and it brings loads of people to the ground, but more people are going to the ground to have their food and drinks than they were before because the products inside are really good. And, you know, that's what the, of course, Spurs are there to kind of have people in the ground as much as possible um, because that's great for them and for their bottom line. So, yeah, it's just, it's just interesting, you know, going into something where you're kind of expecting uh, universal positivity and actually like with most things the picture is just a bit more nuanced than that I think from the club's perspective uh, and also probably from the fans perspective as well the stadium has arrived at, at, at pretty much the almost the worst possible time I guess if you know if it had come five years earlier at the start of that Pochettino cycle then you kind of feel like the atmosphere and the and the kind of familiarity and, and the feeling of home would have grown with that great team and it would have all kind of clicked into place and it would have felt like the stadium would have offered far more benefit to the team in terms of atmosphere and, and it becoming like a hostile environment for, for, for visiting teams. Whereas it's come now in this sort of, what I guess we kind of have to describe as a bit of a lull. You know, even if it had come in five years' time, the, the current situation notwithstanding, it kind of feels like that might have almost been a more suitable time for it to kind of come along when there's an opportunity to kind of rebuild and kind of take stock and whatever else. But it's just a bit unfortunate that you know the the big kick we expected the ground to, to give the team hasn't hasn't really materialised in any particularly big way, which isn't to say there haven't been a, you know some good results and you know they've beaten Manchester City twice there and you know, obviously had the, the Champions League semi final even though they lost that that first leg it was still an amazing night, uh, but it, it, yeah it just kind of felt to to me it's kind of almost felt like the diminishing returns have, have been. <laughs> Uh, that's been far, it's been just so pronounced it's just felt like like it's kind of become a little bit stale quite quickly as an experience mm. i don't know it's I, I mean it's not it's not quite wembley and you know I, I don't think any spurs fan listening to this who went to wembley regularly in the 18 months uh, two years that spurs were playing there would be in a hurry to go back there even even in a cup final but you, you hear about the horror stories of clubs leaving their stadium and there, there was a lot of this when arsenal moved to the emirates in 2006 you know you read not so much now, but you'd read a lot about how the club had kind of lost its soul and it was never going to be the same as Highbury and whatever else. And obviously we've seen it with, with West Ham and the London Stadium as well. I've, I've not felt or kind of seen or read anything that suggests that Spurs fans feel quite, a, that are kind of feel as alienated as that. But, you know, it's it's just not White Hart Lane. I mean, someone made the point, um, one of the fans I spoke to, that he just questions whether there are 60,000 really passionate Tottenham fans out there, um, you know, which means, you know, yes, there are 6,000 fans who really want to go and see them, but there aren't necessarily ones who want to go like every single week and are like completely uh, fanatical. Well, um, I'd but, say we might we might find out in the next few years if Spurs aren't in the Champions League, I guess. That'd be interesting. Do you think that this is like a process that you have to go through after which Spurs will feel more comfortable there? Like, because if you think, if you look at other stadiums, like it took City years to generate any atmosphere at the Etihad, and it's still not perfect. And Arsenal, people seem to have got used to it by now. But I don't 
mean, Charlie, you'll know this better than me. Do you feel like, just how long did it take the Emirates to feel like home there? Yeah, it does take a while. I mean, you need those kind of memorable nights, like those shared experiences. Um, you know, and I think, you know, City was one of them that Spurs got early on. But yeah, it's, it is a bit like moving to a new house. You, you do all just need to become a bit more familiar with it. Um, and I think it, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, do the, should the results be lifting the supporters or should the supporters be lifting the players and helping results? Um, but I definitely think there is an inevitable betting in process. Um, and and I, I am fairly confident for Tottenham that because it's on more or less like the same site, I think that does help. James, do you think that some of the issues with atmosphere at the moment are like an overspill of questions about the direction of the club and the appointment of Mourinho? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think, and, and I kind of think that's understandable. You know, you, the club, the club has been on an upward tra- trajectory for most of the last sort of five or six years, and now we're looking at a situation where whatever happens with the end of the season, it's more or less impossible to imagine that that Spurs end up playing in the Champions League the next time. That that's a thing. Um, so you know, it, uh, you know, as we were talking about with Harry Kane last week, this feels like the first the first moment that that Spurs have been making a, a sort of tangible backward step for a while, um, and that's come in line with the biggest environmental change to the football club in terms of the, the, the club playing in a new stadium. So, you know, it's an unsettling time for a fan when you're not enjoying watching your team play as much because they're not playing as well and you're not in the environment that you grew up watching the team in. It's kind of understandable that people would be a bit sort of snippy about that. Uh, but, you know, as you say, I, I, it's important for the club to kind of move forward from this from this point probably probably more than ever and... Yeah, but uh, as a fan, it's it's quite frustrating to you know kind of be in this sort of state of flux at the moment, not knowing uh, you know what, what the next season is going to be and when it's going to be and you know who's going to be there. It's uh, it's just a, sort of a prolonged spell of uncertainty. I mean, obviously, it's the same for every club, but for, for Spurs in particular, given the way the season had been going, it's uh, yeah, it's it's very frustrating. Tournaments have been cancelled, leagues are suspended, and there hasn't been a live game on TV in weeks. But The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, and in these very strange and uncertain times, they're still hard at work telling unique, engaging and informative stories. The Athletic can keep you connected with all the latest football news during the hiatus, and also bring you the very best writing on Spurs. Sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod for a 90 day free trial. Jack, as well, while we've got you, feel we absolutely have to ask you about your article about Soccer AM, which was an absolute must read if you haven't. It's incredibly entertaining and evocative of that period, that phenomenon. Um, So, just wanted to ask you a little bit about it and like how that all came about and what the process was like writing that piece. And what Tim Lovejoy's like. It took me more work to do that than anything else I've ever done before by a mile. Because uh, it was, I think I did 13 interviews for it, you know, each of which lasts an hour, which means it takes, I don't know, four hours to transcribe. Just trying to build up the most complete picture possible from speaking to everyone. And even then with 13, I didn't get everyone. I didn't get Sheephead. I didn't get Tubes, for example. Um and again, through that whole process, you've got to, you know, once you, you you start with some people, then you've got to convince other people that you're, you know, you've got, you're doing this for the right, 
the right reasons and so on. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a lot of work. I'm very, very grateful to James especially and other people on the desk just for giving me the time to do it. Like, because it's the kind of thing where if we'd rushed it and I hadn't got everyone, because I was still doing interviews for this only a few days ago. Uh, if we'd done it and hadn't got everyone, then, you know, the piece wouldn't have been as good. But I was happy when we published it on Saturday that I'd basically got enough material. I haven't actually counted it, but I'd guess like 100,000 words of, tran- of transcriptions, probably. Wow. Uh, which I then had to kind of boil down and order into some kind of usable document. And even then, when I started... I think the first thing I filed to James would have been sort of ten or eleven thousand, and then James helped me get it down to about seven or eight thousand. Um, so yeah, it, a, a huge amount of work, but I was quite pleased with how it turned out in the end, and pleased with the reaction we've got for it. And for those who haven't read it, what like what are the kind of key things that you took away from it about like you know why it it had such a, kind of has had such a long lasting impact, I suppose. Yeah, so I think the, the the key things were, one is like the unseriousness of it. Like it's not, it was always, it was really fun. Like it was very jokey. It had a, like a shared language which you could buy into, which I think was really crucial in establishing a sense of community amongst the people who watched it and the people who were on it. I think that's really what like elevates mm. it from all the other jokey TV shows is because it had all of its own in-jokes it felt as if you were part of something. It felt as if it was like your... If, that is why it felt like it was your gang of mates, because it had these callbacks and these gags they would do every every week for years. And so there was a kind of richness to this world, like linguistically, which gave it some of its cultural power. I also think... and so When I spoke to Tim, he kept using the phrase perfect storm. And I do think it sat at exactly the right time in terms of the kind of broadening of football's appeal in the mid to late 90s. Uh, the like, I think it's kind of like democratisation of being a football fan in terms of technology and being able to text in and being able to take videos and uh, and that sort of thing. And So I think it was kind of sat on a few... And also like, you know, the popularisation of music, kind of pop music or like Britpop or whatever you, you want to call it and the bands that came on, which kind of you know gave the show an extra sort of cultural edge as well like getting like no everybody mentioned Noel Gallagher and how important it was that Noel Gallagher mm. was like a frequent guest on the show so I think it sat at a kind of helpful time in terms of British culture and it really I mean you can never really get you it's very hard to like measure why something is culturally powerful and why it can tap into tap into various currents that are bigger than than it but for various different reasons i think socrem certainly did but i didn't i felt like even though the piece is very long i didn't feel like i like fully answered lots of those questions because you get so wrapped up in telling the narrative story of it that it's easy to you know there's tons of other stuff i could have included about why it was so powerful the language of the show the music scene all mm. these other questions as well well it's really really brilliant piece and it does like you know amongst my friends it's caused like loads of discussion about much wider issues about kind of football fandom and that sort of thing so i really do urge you to read it if you haven't already thanks to our good pals at beer52.com you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious painstakingly sourced craft beers from all around the world all you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash the lane 
and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the View from the Lane podcast, you will get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash the lane to get your case free. And don't forget right now, listeners get two extra free beers. So we're very lucky to be joined now by two guests. We've got Katrina Law and Martin Cloak from the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust. Um, Kat, can you start off by telling us what the trust does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for listeners who aren't familiar with a trust, it's basically an independent, democratic, formally constituted community benefit society. Uh, the trust at Tottenham Hotspur was formed in 2001. We currently represent in the region of 18,000 members. Uh, we have a board of 10 people. We're elected each year. Um, so we're effectively directors of the trust. Uh, myself and Martin are co-chairs of the organisation. So we hold uh, that position. So we set policy and we try and, you know, kind of lead with, from the front in terms of um, our board and in terms of the work that we do. Uh, we also obviously have a secretary and a treasurer and then we have six other members of our 10 person board as well. We have an ongoing dialogue with the club at Tottenham Hotspur. So that's from executive board level uh, through departmental head level and down to day to day work. So, yes, yeah, so we're, we're pretty much engaged as fan volunteers. Uh, we're not remunerated in any way for the work that we do. Um, but yes, we're there to represent fans, basically, to promote their interests, be mindful of the interests of the local community and to ensure that the best interests of the football club are pursued by its custodians, in a nutshell. I've said that before, you can probably tell. It's obviously been a very newsworthy week at Tottenham with Spurs when isn't furloughing. It? Yeah. <laughs> Quite. Um, with Spurs furloughing some of their non-playing staff and THST published a statement on the website about this. Martin, can you tell us about your stance on this? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I mean, the statement's there on the website for, for everybody to see. Uh, we, we've just basically, I suppose, in a nutshell, asked the club to uh, explain uh, their position a bit more. Um, and obviously, there's, there's a huge row at the moment involving football clubs and football generally. Um, uh, and I think part of the problem that the game's got is that it, it is a game, certainly at the top level, that's flaunted its wealth, hasn't it? Uh, I think um, you know the Spurs announcement came the day after it published its financial results, which uh, looked to most people as if the club was in a, in a fantastic position. And I think that, that the combination of the game flaunting its wealth uh, and the um, tendency of a lot of people in senior positions within the game not to really think that they need to explain themselves... Uh, it is causing a huge amount of problems for the game at the moment. It's causing its unpopularity. Uh, there's obviously been quite a lot of anger um, about the announcement because what it looks like is that people that have got a lot of money are carrying on getting a lot of money and people that haven't got so much money 
uh, are getting their wages cut. Uh, and it also looks as if very rich private uh, organisations are going to the taxpayer for a handout. Um, when you start looking at the detail of the picture a little bit more, football clubs are not the only private organisations that are going to the taxpayer. British Airways are, um, uh, Nissan are, uh, lots of other organisations are doing that as well. Um, and if you'll notice that none of the support organisations that have been involved at clubs that have announced that they're going for the furloughing scheme uh, have jumped in straight away and said, um, this, is a, this is a really bad idea. Uh, we've said that this doesn't look great and we want a further explanation from the club about why they felt it necessary to do that. Um, but we're, you know, one of the things that we're not is a, is a trade union. Uh, we don't represent staff. We don't insert ourselves in those negotiations between the staff and the club. Uh, now, it is possible, and I'm just emphasising it is possible here, uh, because football is a complicated ecosystem and every club is different, uh, that uh, if clubs didn't announce that they were going to go for furloughing, they might need to lay staff off. And I can probably tell that a lot of listeners are screaming at their, at their, you know, their, their phones now going, you know, all these football clubs have got loads of money, why would they need to do that? Uh, that's why we've asked for the explanation of why the clubs feel it necessary, and in our case, why our club feels it necessary to do that. But we're not going to jump in straight away and say, don't do something. Uh, and then that results in people losing their jobs uh, because that's when it gets serious. And, you know, Kat's mentioned we're a voluntary organisation. You're talking about the actual jobs and people's livelihoods here as well. Um, so I think, you know, the, the first that, you know, we know there is a huge, huge amount of anger from fans. Um, we've had quite a lot of fans getting in contact with us. And I think if you check the club's Twitter feed now, every time it puts an announcement out, and this has been the case for the last week, uh, all of the answers for screen after screen are pay your stuff, pay your stuff, pay your stuff. We also know because we're being copied in that, we're, that, that there's a lot of um, angry emails going into the club. And of course, the irony of that is that those angry emails about how badly the club are treating the staff uh, uh, who've had their wages cut by 20% uh, are being answered by the staff who've had their wages cut by 20%. And I'm sure they can appreciate the irony of that as well. But, you know, our position at the moment, and I think together with, with a number of other fan organisations at clubs that have announced this, is that explain why exactly it is that you feel the need to do this. Uh, and, you know, clubs might say, well, we don't want to give away commercial lists, that and the other. There is a public perception that football is taking the mickey at the moment and it is not doing what is morally right. People are using that word morally. Now, they're not using that word about, you know, hedge fund managers or other companies that are doing that. But again, Football puts itself in a position where it is, it is you know, very much in the public eye uh, and influences its wealth. So it, it has to understand that, that, you know, if difficult decisions need to be made, it's got to take people with it. And at the moment, it's not taking people with it. It's making itself look extremely bad. And people have talked about being ashamed of the clubs that they support. Now, that's going to have an impact in future, isn't it? And I think we said right at the start of this that, that this crisis is, is, you know, unprecedented is a word that's been used so many times over the past few weeks, but this is completely new territory for everybody. We don't know. It's going to affect everyone. It's going to financially affect everybody. We don't know uh, what the world's going to be like on the other side of this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really, really new territory for all of us, but there's going to have to be new ways of thinking about things, and I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to a bit of that later in this podcast as well. Do either of you think Tottenham, by which I mean the board rather than the institution itself. Do you think that do you think the board have been slightly taken aback by just how strong the public reaction has been to this? Because I'm slightly surprised by just how strong the public reaction has been since since this news was announced. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to to start off. I'm sure Martin will jump in <laughs> here. 
we've worked closely with the executive board at Tottenham for, well, for, in my case, seven years now. In, in Martin's, just a little bit under than that. And I think the one thing that we'll say confidently is that they always have the courage of their convictions. They're, they're not the kind of people to sit there and go, oh, God, I hope this goes right. And I think that it's a, it's a great plus uh, in some ways to be that confident that every decision that you make is always the right one. I, I, I certainly wish that I had that in my professional career <laughs> as a personality trait. But it's also got its drawbacks as well, uh, which means that sometimes uh, you don't take on board um, feedback or you're not as willing to maybe take a step back and reflect and think, actually, we could have handled that differently. I mean, just uh, as a trust, we obviously have to do an awful lot of media work, too. Uh, and we're asking difficult questions. Uh, and we have work streams that are thrown up in areas that we have very little experience of. So this is one of them. As I highlighted at the start, what we do is represent fans to the club. So this is moving into territory that we don't have much experience in. Where, as Martin said, we're, we're not shop stewards and we don't represent staff. So, uh, this is a very complex issue, as you, you'll have gathered. Um, but we, we have a mantra at the Trust that, you know, you can make a mistake once, but never make the same mistake twice. Uh, you know, and, and that's right. And just do, go with your heart. So I think that the club generally from the conversations that we've had with them, aren't in a position where they think that they've handled this or could have perhaps handled this differently. Um, it, it's kind of a bunker mentality, if that makes sense. It does tie into something you guys have spoken about before, that when you release annual results so long after the event, it does. It can make people think that it's talking about the present day. And that was particularly yeah. pertinent on this occasion because I think for a lot of people it did feel like it had all happened simultaneously because that's when the announcements were. And that, I think, added to some of the frustration. Yeah, it absolutely conflated the two issues. So on one yeah. hand, you've got a great set of financial results, which see um, Daniel Levy being awarded a £3 million bonus for delivering the stadium. Uh, and then the very next breath, we have exactly. the news of 40% of staff being furloughed, 80% wages for everybody else. Um, it, it wasn't a great look. Uh, and that's something that we have tried to hammer home year after year. Partly, we want the accounts to be as useful to us as, I'd say, lay people, but we do have some financial experts on our board. Fortunately, I'm not one of them. I'll stick my hand up. Um, and so it would be to have those figures as quickly as possible would make them as, as more relevant for us when we're trying to understand the financial situation of the club. Obviously, by delaying them for nine months from the end point, which is the very last time you could publish those within that financial year, means that they're virtually irrelevant at the best of times. And so it really wasn't helpful to do that now. Maybe we'll see them published a little bit earlier next time. But, you know, that, that goes back to me uh, that, that they need to take a breath and sometimes maybe reflect on how they've done things and maybe learn from that moving forwards. I think if COVID-19 hadn't come along, then the discussion we'd be having now is why, why did the chairman get a three million pound bonus for delivering a stadium late and over budget? Uh, and that, that would equally be a legitimate question. Uh, the club might turn around and say, well, you know, people are always going to have a go at us about something, aren't they? But, you know, I think we've come back to this that, you know, Kat mentioned this, that one of the things that makes them very difficult to deal with it as, as an executive board is that their view is um, we don't really care in the end what people think of us. We are going to make the decisions that we think are right. 
I think what the current situation is proving and what we've been saying to them and why we're really pushing them to explain a bit more about what they're doing so people can make a more informed judgment uh, about what's going on. Uh, and, you know, and we'd like to know that as well so we can make a more informed judgment is that this is potentially going to have an impact on their business as well. You know, I, I have never seen such a negative reaction from the fan base about anything uh, as I've seen about this. And I think, you know, we, we mean Kat have obviously sort of been in touch and we've been looking at the mails that have been coming in and people that have been contacting us. And it, it is overwhelmingly negative. Now, you know, we don't know. Are people going to be back in six months or a year's time as if nothing's happened? We don't, we, we, we don't know. I think the other interesting thing about this that, that's come up, and, you know, there's a perennial issue, isn't there, about do footballers at the top get paid too much? And again, one of the ironies is that a couple of months ago, coming out to the end of the transfer window, uh, as an organisation, we were getting a fair bit of pressure from some of our members and some of the, the wider fan base for not pushing the club hard enough to pay more wages to players so that we could get those better players at the club that would enable us to push on another level. Now, apparently all footballers are overpaid gits and that they don't deserve what they should be getting. One point I wanted to ask you about this is, from reading Daniel Levy's first statement on, on this topic when the following was announced, it, my interpretation of it was it sounded like he wanted to exercise a little bit of pressure on the Spurs players themselves to take a cut in wages. He said that he hoped that the discussions with the PFA would come to some kind of agreement on this. Clearly, that hasn't happened yet as of Monday afternoon. Do you have a view on what the Spurs players should do about this at this point? Well, we, We've said in a statement that we, we'd like to see um, a voluntary contribution from the players from the directors and from the owner. Uh, and we'd like to see that uh, uh, across the game. And that's certainly the view, again, of, of other fan groups we've, we've spoken to uh, at other clubs. We, we deliberately didn't get involved in the contractual issues uh, because it's not our business to do that. And I think, again, that the, the, you know, the, the, the story when it first broke was that Spurs have chosen to cut their staff's wages, but they have chosen not to cut the player wages. Now, the legality of those contracts are very different. They, 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 can't, they can't cut player terms and conditions without agreement with the, the Professional Footballers Association. Um, I think the problem that's come on, I think you're probably right, it does look like there's an, there's a, an effort and a push with it from within the game, not just from Spurs, to put a bit of pressure on the players. I think that it's pretty clear that that has massively backfired at the moment because the players feel as if they're being pushed into a corner. They feel as if they're being scapegoated. They're saying, well, what about the owners? What about the directors? What about other people uh, you know, that, that, that don't make a contribution? Um, and, you know, there is the case that, you know, that those highly paid players also pay tax at fairly high rates as well, although some of them utilise the kind of tax avoidance or tax, you know, uh, reduction schemes that maybe people think are a little bit questionable. But there is a lot of the tax take from the players that goes into supporting things like the NHS. So I think that the, that the clubs did think that they were putting a bit of pressure on the players and the players are always an easy target. I think there was a very good piece by Marina Hyde, wasn't there, in The Guardian last, last week, where she said that, you know, that you, you always get this, that it's players' wages that are always the measure of, uh, you know, it's, it, it, you know, this player's wages, this many nurses or this many hospitals or whatever. But it never goes down to kind of, you know, you look at the prime minister and you say, well, how much of his time would pay for a new midfielder for Newcastle United or something like that? So, you know, it's always footballers that are the scapegoats, but they are not the only people in our society that earn a load of money. So I think what the clubs have done is overplayed their hand. Uh, and, you know, you can have your own views about, you know, whether the PFA have handled the whole thing, right? That's their business and that's for them to explain. But I think the problem you've got now 
is that, you know, usually in any negotiation, if you back people into a corner, it doesn't really work because people feel as if they have to let out and defend themselves as well. It's not conducive to getting a proper agreement. And from what we're hearing and from some of the reports that you guys will be reading as well, there is a willingness among the players to try and do the right thing. But what they don't want to do is, is give up or you know, reduce their wages or reduce their conditions. And then the clubs just take that on board themselves rather than it going to where it should be going to, which is either you know reducing the burden on the state uh, or supporting staff at the clubs or whatever. So again, there needs to be a proper discussion about that rather than people trying to point the finger at people. Another thing that gets asked a lot, which is you know certainly targets been tar- the same question has been asked to Liverpool recently with their own owners, is e- even if Tottenham Hotspur technically have the right to use the government furlough program do you think it's right that billionaire joe lewis should be using public money to cover his costs like this again that's that's a question you know it's a question that goes right across the board isn't it is that who who is entitled and who isn't who is too rich to use them to use the scheme and who isn't too rich what are the results of not using that scheme uh, and I think I said again, you know, that there is there is a, a complicated situation uh, at each club. So, you know, Spurs are a very rich club, but we don't know what the situation is in terms of things like, you know, cash flow value and whatever. We don't know what the situation is at Liverpool. Um, it's obviously not a good look that you've got these incredibly rich, you know, owners and very rich organisations who are then going to, um, you know, they, they, they're going to the state for a handout. Spurs would point out that they paid £45 million in tax last year which is a lot more than everybody else and they will say well joe lewis might be the ultimate owner um but actually you know the club is registered in this country it's run in this country and it pays all its taxes and that would be true you know look you look at the arguments that have gone about the ownership of manchester city as well uh you know and city have chosen to do what many people will see as the right thing uh, by not furloughing their staff but then there are questions about you know well they're actually they're owned by a country and not just by an individual and there are questions about the practices of that country as well aren't there so Again, that you know, it's. I think the game is a, a. A lot of these criticisms could well be true. It doesn't look great, and it doesn't sit well with me individually in terms of what my politics are. But I know that there are other fans who will have different views on things like taxation and and personal wealth and that standing as well. So, but what the game has got to do is make a much better case for why it is acting in the way it is. And at the moment, it looks absolutely terrible, and it is really risking people you know, having that disconnection with it and, you know, that, that financial bubble bursted in future as well. Uh, and maybe that will be part of the new world that we all go into. Can you envisage a healthier, fairer football coming out of this? That would be great, wouldn't it? I think we've all felt for too long it's been putting in perhaps the wrong direction. But genuinely, on the back of this, who knows? I think that the main focus now is to get every club through the next few months. Because, you know, realistically, there's not going to be any games, certainly with fans in the ground until perhaps the autumn. And I think there are going to be issues with cash flow for a lot of clubs. Um, Tottenham's obviously got a lot of debt, uh, so that's not great. And if Tottenham have got to cancel all of their concerts and gigs and boxing and whatever else that was scheduled in for over the summer, that's also not great. But Tottenham are by no means an island. You know, there are uh, a lot of other clubs as well. He'll be in perhaps a worse situation. So I think short term, let's just have all of the clubs still in play for fans to get back to supporting. And then let's see what the new reality looks like, basically. I just wanted to ask you guys as well, um, and I spoke to you both about it for a piece I worked on last week, obviously a year anniversary of the new stadium on Friday. Just wondered how, uh, if you could tell our listeners, like how the new stadium has been for you a year in and what your impressions are kind of from the wider fan base. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't mind opening up on that if that's okay with you, Martin. Um, Go look, for it. Uh, when I spoke to Charlie earlier, uh, I did also say that I'm a big fan of the new stadium. Um, originally, I, I really had reservations. Uh, White Hart Lane to me was perfection. I, I loved everything about it. I loved its ramshackleness. I loved the fact you had literally no leg room in the East Stand whatsoever. They couldn't even fit like a proper catering outlet in there. I, I loved how tight we were to the pitch. I loved that I would perhaps talk about this later, those nights when literally the roof was shaking. And I was really very sad that we had to move on from that. And those memories will will always live with me. That will always be my stadium. But I think to be able to build a, st- a new ground on the same site as the old one was a huge feat. And we shouldn't underestimate or overlook that right now. Uh, it was a tremendous thing to be able to achieve. And I think that whenever you walk into the new stadium now, for me, I still feel like I'm going home because obviously all the surrounding areas are the same, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's great. So that was a big bonus. I love the design. I think it's out of this world. I mean, I've been to an awful lot of stadiums in this country and on the continent, and I've never been to anything quite like it. I think in terms of the attention to detail, in terms of the finish, in terms of the nods to our heritage, and in terms of the facilities there, so the bars, uh, the restrooms, you know, whatever else, the view from your seat is absolutely phenomenal. So in terms of a structure, I think they've completely smashed it. And, and I'm in love with it. I think it's amazing. Martin and Kat, that's, there's so much stuff we could talk about, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the podcast. That was really interesting to hear the THST stance on the club's furloughing of the club staff last week. Um, guys, what did you think of it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think they were right to allude to uh, the nuances of it. It is a really complicated situation. Um, I mean, I think as well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Spurs, you know, putting all their recruitment staff on furloughing and things like that, which which isn't the case. You know, they've put some, but by no means all. So, you know, th- their belief is that it won't be as damaging um, as some have been making out. But I think these are huge moral issues, you know, about whether they should be doing it and whether they shouldn't. It may be as well that lots of other clubs follow suit. I kind of found it, it almost quite kind of embarrassing the way that that statement came out. It it was so kind of defiant. And as, as Martin and Kat alluded to, you know, that the boards at Spurs are always so certain of their own decisions and, you know, if you're running a big organisation like that, I guess you kind of have to be. But it just felt like, you know, they hadn't really sensed the tone of the room at the time. Uh, you know, th- th- this this virus is a thing that's affecting uh, almost literally everybody in one way or another. And, uh, you know, for, a, for an organisation the size of Tottenham with the amount of money that they make to... You know, to kind of to take this action, I don't want to say rationally, but seemingly quite quickly, really, if you can in comparison to other clubs. Uh, it, you know, and you're right, you know, as we said before, they, they were kind of a bit unlucky that the, the fact that came out the day after the, the financial statement, which obviously had to be made at that point, and there wasn't really much flexibility there. But with that in mind, perhaps they could have been a bit more sort of patient with... with with announcing that, I mean, other clubs will will you know will follow suit, but that doesn't make it right, really, does it? And you know, you'd like to think Spurs could lead the way on doing the right thing, and but yeah, clearly uh, that hasn't been the way things have gone as of yet. Yeah, well, I'm sure this is an issue which will run and run, and which we will address 
next week. Uh, listeners, thank you very much for joining us. If you've got any topics you want us to discuss on future podcasts before the resumption of football, um, please tweet us and let us know. Otherwise, we will be back next week. Music